Yes, a very good morning to you, Lionheart Radio 107.3 FM, community radio for the Annick area. It's the movie hour with myself, Richard Dale, and as it's the first ever bilingual one in English and Latin, Daniel Mumbius. Good morning, Cus. Richard yes, Dallas. Indeed. How are you? I'm fine, and you? Uh, slightly worse for wear, but I'm happy to be here. Great, good. I was going to try and do something out of your first name in sort of dodgy Latin, but I couldn't stop it being Danielle. And <laughs> yes. I didn't think that would get the, mo- the programme off to the right start, really. No, well, I mean, the only Latin that I know is, um, did you ever read Aquila, that, which was made into a children's TV series? No, I didn't. Because there was that Latin phrase, like, licat volaris is superterum aquila volat. Which Very means good, any man can good. fly if he rides yes. on the back of an eagle. I did Latin at school. I oh, hate sorry, every I shouldn't single be moment of it. So why is it bilingual this week? Well, our cult classic is If. Yes, Lindsay Anderson's best film from the late 60s, which, you know, is one of the greatest films yeah. of the 1960s. And it? more for its mangling of Latin than its use of Latin, the final Harry Potter. Yes, um, we shall be talking about uh, Deathly Hallows Part 2, along with Hobo with a Shotgun and uh, a couple of other ones. Yeah, I'd like to know if any of the Latin words are real. Yes. I'll get my Latin dictionary You know later. more about Harry Potter than me, so oh, I'm not really the person to ask. Yes. It's probably a, a thing of my ear, and we'll talk about that when we get to if, but did you ever used to do uh, Pig Latin at school? I know of Pig Latin, we yes. didn't use it. Or Igpe Atin layers, it was, uh, as it's known if you understand it, we'll talk about a bit about that yeah. later. I was trying to say let's move on in Pig Latin, but my brain isn't moving quick enough this morning. Right. So. Anyway, our first track this morning was uh, Beauty School Dropout from the film Grease cameo appearance by Frankie Avalon, uh, film star Abba, of course, great singer. As you can see from the load of tracks from him that we've got on the computer, we might just get one on before the end of the show. Yeah, yeah. I'm Frankie Avalon morning. Why not? Right, it's all live action at the Playhouse this week, so uh, great for live uh, productions, but not so great for the films. Mm-hmm. So should we look at what's going on at the Mortings in Berwick? Seems like the only option. Yeah, Monday uh, evening, 8 o'clock, it is 13 Assassins. Now, that looks pretty good. Um, it's a martial arts film directed by Takashi Miike, who is a, a very prolific Japanese filmmaker. He's most famous for... Uh, a film which came out about ten years ago called Audition, which sort of starts out as like a romantic comedy and then turns into very graphic horror. Um, I like Takashi Miki. He's, he's you now a very good nuts and bolts director, and this looks like one of his best works. Great. And an absolute bargain. Tickets just £2.50 for that one. Mm-hmm. And then on Thursday evening, Water for Elephants. Um, I think we've covered this in some detail. If, if, you're, if you like old school melodramas, you'll love it. If you don't, you'll be bored. So okay, right. It's an age thing. So, the Mortings box office number, if you want to go, is 01289 330999. And at £2.50 for a film on Monday night, that sounds a really good one to go to. Hmm. Shall we see what's in the top ten? A bit of a mixed bunch, really, isn't it? It usually is, but yes. let's dive in. Right, Green Lantern at number ten. Which is rubbish. Martin Campbell, who directed it, is much better than this. Um, I don't think there's going to be a sequel now because it's taken next to no money. But, yeah, it's just... it's beneath him, frankly. Right. X-Men First Class. Which is fine. I mean, it's not Matthew Vaughan's finest hour, and no, there are too many characters, and I'm still a bit annoyed about the duplicity of the men get to walk around with buckets on their heads while the women have to be in their underwear, but it's better than X-Men 3, but then again, hitting your head with a spanner is better than X-Men 3. (laughs) It's Larry Crown at number eight. I'm still in device about this, because, no, I like Tom Hanks, I quite like Julia Roberts, although, like I said last week, she has spent a lot of her career just turning up, um, smiling, and then picking up the cheque. And I like... The idea of, you know, a mainstream comedy which is taking money about sort of two middle-aged people finding love, but it is incredibly contrived and not as funny as it needs to be. Great. 
number seven. It's dragging on, isn't it? It's The Hangover Part 2. It's terrible. It'll be out of the top ten, well, if not next week, then the week after. But I'm, I'm surprised it's taken right. so much. Okay, a couple of better ones now. Number six, The Tree of Life. I'm glad to see it's taking money. Um, like I said last week, I don't think it's Terence Malick's finest work, because for me, he's never live up, lived up to the quality of Badlands. And there are things in The Tree of Life which are not pretentious, but just very difficult to deal with, like the dinosaur sequence, which, no, even in the reviews that have praised it, a lot of people have pointed out that that could be a false note. And on top of that, I'm not the biggest fan of Sean Penn, because I think he's a bit grandstanding. But I like Brad Pitt. I think that any Terence Malick film deserves to take money, because he is a proper filmmaker who understands and loves cinema. And how refreshing in the, the week that Transformers is still at the top of the box office, that we have a film that actually wants to treat people like adults and explore ideas of metaphysics. Sounds good. And a rare 100% on Rotten Tomatoes for number five, The Guard. Now, this wasn't widely press-screened. It's an Irish cop movie starring Brendan Gleeson, who seems to be turning up in everything at the moment. Um, did you see Green Zone last year? Yes, yes. Yeah, which was very underrated, actually, but he was in that as a uh, sort of CIA operative, and he was very good. Um, like I say, I don't know, have much information on it. It looks pretty good because Brendan Gleeson is, is good to see in pretty much everything. If you haven't seen him in, in Bruges, go and see that because that's a really good comedy gangster film with Ray Fiennes in, which we'll talk about a little bit yeah. later because of Harry Potter. Into the top four, and at number four is Bad Teacher. Which is not funny. If you've seen the trailer, you've kind of seen the film, and Cameron Diaz is continuing to decline as an actress. Right. Kung Fu Panda 2. <laughs> it's fine. Didn't need to be in 3D. The background detail's the best thing. I guess this has taken enough money for there to be a third one in a couple of years' time. Okay. Number two, Bridesmaids. Yeah, I don't think it's quite the comic masterpiece that a lot of people say. And I mean, that that might just be my, uh, my previous bad experiences with the work of Judd Apatow. But no, I think it is by and large pretty funny. I think Kristen Wiig is quite talented. No, more so than her Saturday Night Live appearances would lead you to believe. It's pretty good. Great. Oh, by the way, uh, thanks to uh, Shane, who uh, left a message on Facebook for me last week, completely disagreeing with our review of the number one. He thinks it's a great series of films. I think we're unnecessarily uh, critical, but that's not going to stop us. So just, just close your ears for the next 30 seconds, Shane. Number one, it's Transformers. No, no, all opinions are valid, just that we're right and you're not. If you go and see it, shame on you and shame on everyone who made it, especially Steven Spielberg, who should know better than to put his name on this as executive producer. Yes. I guess the good news is this will be its last week at number one. Well, yes, I think that's almost... <laughs> uh, I would be... I think if, it, if Harry Potter doesn't go to number one, there'll be serious questions asked about Gosh. David Yates. So... Let's pick the, uh, the best of the, uh, the week, then. Well, X-Men's still in there, but the recommendation is still the Tree of Life for all its flaws and no... I, I don't... I mean, if you're not a Terrence Malick fan, you, you're better off watching either Badlands or Days of Heaven first, but if you, if you just want something that's intelligent, then obviously that's the one to go for. And, of course, Assassins. Thirteen uh, Assassins. Thirteen Assassins. Yes. at Berwick on Monday night. Yeah, Assassins is something much different. That's uh, not very good. Thanks for tuning in to the district's newest radio station, Lionheart Radio. Now, the cult classic. We've been waiting for this for ages. Yes, we have. Um, so do you want me to set it up and then yeah. we'll play the trailer? Okay, so we're doing If with four dots after it. Uh, 1968 film directed by Lindsay Anderson, who is 
one of the most important and the most underrated directors in British cinema. I mean, he began, he's had a very unusual career because he began his career as a film critic. I think he was writing for, um, what well, I think it was the Left Book Club is where he started off. And then he made a series of short documentaries with a couple of other filmmakers, Carol Rice, who later made The French Lieutenant's Woman, and Tony Richardson, who was a very good theatre director. And together they formed what was known as the Free Cinema Movement of the mid-50s, this sort of, this low-budget documentary series which sort of, which made a lot of impressionistic black-and-white films about things like Covent Garden Market and Dreamland Resort. Now, taking subjects which hadn't been seen on British screens a lot and sort of bringing new stories to it. Prior to this, he directed Richard Harris in a film called This Sporting Life, which is one of the best films ever made about rugby, and yeah, I think I remember that well. launched yes. the career of Richard Harris both as an actor and as a hellraiser, because there's all yeah. sorts of stories about what Richard Harris did on that film. <laughs> I'm sure, yes. Yeah, no, and even on the Harry Potter stuff, he was, no, yeah. no I say, cladding around. It's also notable for the fact that this is the screen debut of Malcolm McDowell, whom I absolutely adore, and not just because of Clockwork Orange. I mean, he's... He's, a, he's an actor whose subsequent career has sort of not... It's not been the career he's deserved because of how good he is. I mean, obviously, he's in Clockwork Orange, and he's in the sequels to this, which are A Lucky Man and Britannia Hospital. Yeah. There's also a really good comedy he made in the late 70s called Time After Time, where he plays either H.G. Wells or the descendant of H.G. Wells who has to travel through time to stop Jack yes, the Ripper. Yes, I remember that. And yes, they end up yeah. in 70s San Francisco. <laughs> Brilliant actor. Yeah. Brilliant actor. So this is his screen debut, and I think he was about 19 when they made it, and yeah. you can... Certainly from someone who loves Clockwork Orange, which I do, you can sort of see all the, the aspects of his performance which sort of carried over into Kubrick's work three years afterwards. So back in 1968, we used to have the Parfait News and B-movies, so we didn't used to get trailers, so mm -hmm. I haven't been able to find one. But this is a little bit of a review programme, an extract from it, which was done a few years ago. I remember when I was a kid seeing stills from the movie, the very idea of these English schoolboys running around with firearms was kind of like there was just something so fundamentally taboo to me. I think more than any other film that Lindsay Anderson ever made, If created the biggest schism in the audience. Because it's not that Lindsay Anderson wanted to destroy cinema. He wanted to reinvent it. It's a very big interest in 70s cinema, when a lot of early 70s cinema in particular is about that cynicism coming through. So films like Get Carter and The French Connection and A Clockwork Orange to some extent, which you could almost call if sort of more twisted cynical cousin because it sort of takes the idealism of if and completely transmutes it so that the youth aren't forced for good they're a force for malice aside from anything else it's also difficult because of the way in which countercultural films often communicate their politics because because they were a lot of things like for instance I suppose the American equivalent would be Easy Rider. Yeah. Because a lot of those films, they assume that the people who are watching it have a kind of innate understanding of the politics as well. They were sort of made by revolutionaries for revolutionaries. And therefore, looking at it outside of that context, it's often, they often come across as more impenetrable and quite dated. Particularly when you look at things like the, the Hollywood studio's attempts to cash in on the counterculture movement. They, have you heard of a film called Skidoo, which I think had Marlon Brando in? No, this, try, this thing that Warner Brothers made in the late 60s, which tried to cash in on the whole hippie movement. And just, they, they took a load of teenagers, basically gave them what they thought was LSD and filmed them for a couple of hours, and it was really terrible. Or, of course, Myra Breckenridge, yep. which is you know, the big Hollywood catastrophe of the early 70s with uh, Raquel Welsh. So... 
When I reviewed uh, Take Me Home Tonight a few weeks ago, which is where we first mentioned Diff, yes. um, I, I posited the idea that it was the greatest high school movie ever made. And I would argue that because it has the best of every possible world. It's got earthy black comedy with you no know, adolescent undertones because there are there is talk about sort of bodily functions and yeah. puberty and so forth it's got artistic flights of fantasy there are these wonderful surrealistic dream sequences particularly the one in which they find the weapons which just happen to be hidden under the school uh there's savage satire of well not just the establishment but established order whether it's in the shape of teachers or the parents or the police because they get involved as well there's the personal quandaries of the central character, like the sequence of McDowell being whipped in the gym in which he's kind of, it's leading him towards his final act of rebellion. It's basically everything you want from a coming-of-age film and everything you want from a high yeah. school film. And very hard to watch it now and sort of realise it was a film of its uh, of its period. I mean, I, when I first went to see it, it was with a bunch of uh, public school kids. Mm -hmm. And they came out probably more disturbed than I did. I mean, <laughs> I, I thought it was a interesting film <laughs> put it mildly um <laughs> but uh, quite enjoyed it they came out seriously disturbed because i think they could identify with so much of the first half of the film yes um and then they sort of realizing you know how how close they may have been to the edge themselves yeah i mean uh, bear in mind of course that lindsay anderson he was certainly oxford educated but he might have been public school as well yes. so uh, imagine how he must have felt yeah. making it i mean even in my days going to uh, a state uh, grammar school as i did in the early 70s uh we used to have a cadet force and yeah, every friday afternoon every kid over 13 would turn up in army uniform or mm. uh, or raf uniform and yeah they'd be going around with the guns thankfully without ammunition in yes um otherwise i'm sure there's one headmaster that would have been uh, <laughs> well up in the target yes. range but uh, <laughs> um you know it, it was a very very odd life in schools in those days particularly the public schools because they were so brutal because they were these kids sort of cooped up and you know isolated from reality and it was uh, so it was interesting i mean they could see you know just how close that they may have been albeit they'd presumably not found the arms so yeah i was going to say did they express yes. regret of not having found <laughs> that it was uh, definitely a film of the era and very realistic and i think if you watch it now you'd think no this can't possibly be right well this is the thing i mean speaking as someone who only saw the film you no know, a couple of years ago first time around so i wouldn't have had any first-hand experience yeah. of that era i think the thing that struck me most about it was this combination of naturalism in the way that the characters are portrayed and these surrealistic flights of fantasy which sort of because if the if the gun scene had just been played straight then it would be ridiculous yeah. but the fact that lindsay anderson shoots it in a very dreamlike fashion as if it's it's their de it's a representation of their desire to rebel rather than the actual act of them getting the weapons but we'll come on to that in a second yeah. now when i say no, the greatest high school film ever made it does seem like an odd choice considering the kind of schooling that we, i mean like you say Public school then and you know, to some extent now they have a reputation for being sort of these very hermetically sealed communities and you know, with people very distant from the outside world. I mean, you look at, you look at, and most of the time public school set dramas are very safe affairs. I mean, you look at things like the Browning version from the 30s or Goodbye Mr. Chips or Tom Brown's School Days. Yeah. Now, there's little, there's potential for good, well-worn drama, but you wouldn't associate them automatically with rebellion or no. revolution because they're very ordered, very staid, very... Yes, because the school mechanism always won. Yes, the school always wins. Or, of course, you, you look at things like... Um, Billy Bunter, I suppose, which could fit into that as well. So the first coup of If, for me, is that it manages to be aware of the sort of the advantages of public school in the way that, you know, it's very intelligent and very sophisticated, while simultaneously and very overtly savaging every single aspect of it. I mean, the very, the title of If is 
is every bit as drenched in defiance as everything else in the film because there's a famous Rudyard Kipling poem called If yes. with three dots yeah. which is the one that if you've seen um, Mike Bassett England Manager it's the one that Ricky Tomlinson recites when he's trying to get the journalists yeah. on his side as they go into the film. you've seen Mike Bassett England Manager yes I have yes. Yeah, it's, it's very, not bad actually very is it? good film yeah I quite enjoy it even though it is a bit rough around the edges so because there's a and then so you have the the Rudyard Kipling poem then the sort of the extra the fourth dot in the if ellipsis is like it's an impudent revision <laughs> so it's like yes I'm just going to put another dot here just to annoy you and uh, the, certainly the film gives the key line if you want to understand the film is there's the penultimate line in the Kipling poem which is yours is the earth and everything that's in it which when Kipling wrote that poem it was about if you conform to all these ideals of what makes a great man then you will succeed in life. Whereas what the characters in the film do is effectively take that and read is actually yours and the earth is everything in it means we can take over the world and live our lives the way we want to and if you get in our way you're going to be killed. So it's a very interesting subversion of that yeah. old no imperialist very conservative idea so that you simultaneously understand it while understanding how bankrupt it all is. Yeah. And this kind of this interesting balance is reflected in the characters because on the one hand there is a, a very bitter opposition between age and youth because on the one hand you've got the masters and the parents and the prefects who are very much entrenched in you know, the pre-war imperial mindset on which you know, the emphasis is on serving one's country and knowing one's place and then that's contrasted with the younger boys who feel no attachment to these values and regard everyone as you know, irrelevant and stuffy and outdated. Yeah. But there are instances this is what makes it more interesting and smarter than a lot of countercultural films. There are instances of crossover between the two where you see characters sort of weighing up where their allegiances truly lie. On the one hand, you've got um, some of the teachers. There's a, a history professor played by Graham Crowden who turns up in the two sequels as the mad professor who creates the massive artificial brain in the end of Britannia Hospital, in which I said was one of the creepiest scenes in 80 cinema. And he turns up um, in, um, in one of his scenes in which he's coming along the corridors on a bicycle and he kind of cycles right into the class while singing to be a pilgrim and dismounts and starts talking about, no, history is run by evil men. On the other hand, you might think this, and it's, no, it's yeah. a teacher attempting to sort of get down with the kids, but in a more convincing way. And then there's the running joke about the headmaster who sort of calls the boys into his office and just keeps saying, I understand. And of course, that has an ironic twist because that's his closing lines before he gets a bullet in the head in the last scene, not to give too much away. So on that, so... Not all the headmasters and the prefects are portrayed as sort of stuffy old bores, but yeah. on the other hand, you don't have all the students as being like didactic flag waves and just empty political puppets. Um, have you seen a film called Zabriskie Point? No. From the early 70s, um, Michelangelo Antonioni film, Antonioni who made things like The Passenger and yeah. Blow Up and so forth, and that was his, his second English language film, which is notable mainly for the fact that it has a soundtrack by Pink Floyd, and that, that starts with a ten-minute sequence of students at an American university just arguing about Marxist politics, and, you know, goes on a bit, like a lot of Antonioni's <laughs> work, but the point about that film is that you... Because Antonioni was making that from an outsider's point of view, because he was an yeah. Italian filmmaker, you never got the sense that these were real people. They were just sort of vessels for his own political concourse. Yeah. Whereas with If, they do feel like fully rounded people who just happen to be a little bit political. And although Malcolm McDowell's character does have sort of posters of Lenin and Che Guevara adorning his wall, most of his instinct of rebellion it's much more romantic with a capital r because it's not about saying let's crush the capitalist pig dogs and you no know, change the world in favor of marxism because anderson was quite a left winger yeah but it's more a case of 
Even in the shadow of a possible nuclear holocaust, I want the right to live my life in the most joyous and freely expressed way that I want, and I don't want any of this authority getting in the way. So when he rejects the authority of the school, it isn't a rejection on political grounds, it's just a rejection of all forms of yeah. authority, because like, I want to live my life the way I want, and no one can tell me who I am. There's, within that, there is a large amount of the film which is about sexual liberation, which, you know, if, as the teen movie scene goes on in the 70s and 80s, that becomes a very running theme, and certainly by the time you get to Animal House and Porky's, that's become the main meat and potatoes, and no characters wanting to lose yeah. their virginity. Um, one of the best sequences in the film is a surreal sequence where Travis and one of his friends go into town, randomly decide to steal a motorbike, as you do, yeah. and they drive off and come to a roadside uh, cafe, and uh, they order coffee in a slightly impudent way, you know, requesting whether it's black yeah. or white, and then uh, Mick Travis puts a piece of classical music on the jukebox and randomly starts having an affair with a waitress. And, no, it, like I say, if you say it like that, it sounds like, well, don't be stupid, that's absurd, but it's, it's shot in such a wonderful way that it, you kind of see all those emotions coming out and now yeah. outside of the confines of the school this is the first chance they've had to properly express themselves and not yeah. in a sort of awkward cliched public school way of just you know, not knowing where to put your hands or something yes. like that and there are other sections like that where um there's a, one of the black and white bits where one of the younger boys is watching one of Mick Travis's friends training on the parallel bars and he just watches him for about two or three minutes as he goes through all the moves and you no know, that yeah. they begin a sort of homoerotic encounter i mean i don't think anderson it's sort of, it's not condoning free love per se in the sort of way that, you know, hippie movies often did, but it's, it's a reinforcement of the need of, you know, the running theme of the film, which is society should be shaped by the people, not the other way around. Yeah. Um, that brings us on to Anderson's own sort of, his background in the film, because like I said, he was probably public school trained, certainly he went to Wadham College, Oxford, which I know a lot of sort of Etonians and um, Harvard and former, not Harvard, uh, Herovians, that's a, uh, a lot of those went to Wadham College. So the film is on the one hand about these characters, but also there is a lot of it which is about Anderson taking his stand against the values of England and English cinema. Because one of the things that he had tried to do as a documentarian was to, to sort of push away the post-war malaise of British cinema, because you look back to the sort of things like the late 40s and early 50s, yeah. you know, when Alfred Hitchcock was in America and Michael Powell had sort of, you know, gone past his prime. I mean, obviously he'd make Peeping Tom later, but he was he was making sort of run-of-the-mill war films like Ill Met by Goon, My, My Moonlight. Not Ill Met by Goonlight, that's the parody. Um, cinema was in a sort of, it was in a rut where it just kept producing slightly ropey comedies and yeah. American melodramas and there were, they weren't real people in them anymore. So what Anderson did was he took his camera into places like Inner City Bradford and Nottingham and Derby and so forth and brought these new stories to light. And the film of If is basically like him taking the institution that made him, in this case public school, and saying, you know what, thanks but no thanks, you are not relevant anymore, you are stopping the real honest people from coming through and you're going to have to step aside. Yeah. And throughout the film we see the community trying to drill the students in with these kind of bastions and these values of honour and duty and fighting the good fight, only for these ideas to crumble into absurdity when they actually get applied. I'll give you a couple examples of that. Uh, first one is uh, about three quarters of the way through the film, um, the chaplain gives a sermon about fighting for Christ and saying that the greatest sin of all is desertion and he sort of ties it in with Judas Iscariot. And then they go out and have the war games and the chaplain approaches Mick Travis only to discover that Travis has got real bullets in his gun <laughs> and he becomes this quivering wreck in the corner yeah. and, a, and that's an expression of the idea of, you know, you can talk the talk but when you actually walk the walk yeah. it doesn't work. Yes. And of course there's that really bizarre section afterwards when the boys are being told off by the headmaster and he says, okay, now you 
you can say sorry. And he, the chaplain literally appears out of a drawer and comes and shakes the hand <laughs> and gets back in the drawer. It's like, I'm afraid to see them anymore. And then there's a sequence at the end of the film where the ge a general has sort of come in on, I think it's prize giving day or something, to speak yeah. to the boys about, you now all the cynics who attack our ideas and then they knock them down but they've got nothing to put in their place. And he's just about to talk about discipline when the whole stage starts catching fire and as he's delivering this speech <laughs> about the need to be disciplined, yeah. everyone's sort of running around in blind panic and that is a wonderfully... It's mercilessly black humour yeah. of just, you know, these ideals are dead and get over it because they're just not relevant anymore. In terms of the performances, I mean, I think that Malcolm McDowell, no pun intended, is magnificent. Yeah. And, you know, like I say, there is a close comparison with Clockwork Orange. There's also, I suppose, a little bit of comparison with Full Metal Jacket, if you want to stick with the Kubrick reference, because there is... The sequence where McDowell is being beaten in the gym is a bit like the boot camp sequences at the start of Full Metal Jacket, yeah. where, you know, Gunnery Sergeant Hartman is laying into Private Pile, and the idea is that the more exposure you have to brutality, the more determined it actually makes yeah. you to rebel, and it's the idea of the perfect machine yeah. going wrong. And although Kubrick and Anderson do direct in totally different ways, they both use McDowell superbly, because McDowell, and certainly in that period, he had these kind of, these huge puppy dog eyes and the... the the perfectly sort of groomed hair, the curled lips and the upstart demeanour. There's a great story about when they were filming the sequence of uh, Travis fencing in the gym. Mm. Um, so some of the shots in which you can see Malcolm McDowell's tongue sticking out because he wasn't, this was his first film and he didn't really know how to work the camera. He was sort of concentrating so much on the fencing that he forgot to actually act with the rest of his face. <laughs> and yeah. he, and, he and Lindsay Anderson were at the rushes the next day when you see the, the previous day's filming. And Lindsay said, no, I can't use any of this because it's clear that you're not playing the character. And he's, yeah. you, know, you need to learn how to use your face. And Malcolm said, oh, can we do it again then? He said, no, of course we can't do it again. We've got no money left now. <laughs> so I'll just cut around yeah. your face and we'll get the impression that you're, being, you're fighting and so forth. The thing about McDowell that sort of nails it for me is his voice. I mean, yeah. he has, it's that wonderful blend which, the, which sort of epitomizes the film of elegance but also impudence. Yeah. And there's that wonderful line when he's being confronted by the prefects just before they're going to beat him. And they said, do you have anything to say for yourself? And he says, yes, I do. The thing I hate about you, Roundtree, because one of the prefects is yes. called Roundtree, yeah. is the way you give Coca-Cola to your scum and your best teddy bear to Oxfam <laughs> and expect us to lick your frigid fingers for the rest of your frigid life. And then it cuts to the prefect, just stony face. Like, yes. I've been exposed. Yeah. So he's just fantastic. We talked a little bit about the visuals of If um, a few weeks ago. I mean, it's a, it's a story we've told a couple of times, but it's well worth saying. Um, it's in a combination of colour and black and white. And yep. when the film was first released, there were all sorts of, in the way that critics often do, they try and read artistically into it, saying, hmm. No, it's just lack of money. Yes, exactly. <laughs> no, all these critics were saying, you know, oh, these are the everything in black and white is a dream, everything in black and white is, you know, the old order, when in fact, Lindsay Anderson, well, there's two versions, either he just ran out of money, or the sections that are in black and white, it was easier to light in black yeah. and white, because you know, the sequences in the cathedral, when you've got stained glass coming through, and it's very difficult to do when you've got no money. Yeah. And I think in the end, the, the visuals don't add much, but they, the film benefits from this sort of happy accident in yeah, terms of does, creating yes, an identity. Yeah. And Anderson's direction is very, very understated, insofar as he knows where to put the camera and he knows how to light a scene, but as with his work with the British New Wave, it's very much like the characters have to create this world for themselves and I'm just observing. And if I can capture it from the best possible angle, then I'm doing yeah. my job. As opposed to what Kubrick did, which is I have a very clear point of view and then the actors have to sort of move around to fit in with that point of yeah. view. I mean, both are great filmmakers, but it's a very different approach. So, to sum it up, it is 
every bit as incendiary and as perfect as it was over 40 years ago. I think that Anderson is a truly exceptional director. The performances are great. The balance between impudence and elegance, naturalism and surrealism is no perfect. It is a truthful product of its time and a work of total genius. Great film. And if you haven't seen it, go and see it right now. Yeah. And the music. Yes. We heard it in the, um, in the trailer. Uh, brilliant, isn't it? Mm. And, uh... From uh, the Sanctus from the Missa Luba, and apparently uh, I shall go away and have a look at my Guinness Book of Hit Singles in a moment. It was in it was a, a UK singles hit in the sixties, right? Sung by a choir of Congolese children. <laughs> that is interesting. I didn't know that. Oh, yes. Right. Let's have some music, shall we? This is the fresh sound for the district. Live, Live from Annick. This is Lionheart Radio. The great Frankie Avalon there. We started the show with him and we've got another one. That's called All Those Teardrops. I'm not here next Saturday. Oh, what a shame. I'm off to Newcastle Airport. <laughs> that sounded really sarcastic. To, to meet a friend who's uh, coming up from Southampton, so I've got to go meet her from the airport. Fair enough. But we've got uh, Tom Davidson. Uh, and he's, of course, our uh, other movie critic from a Tuesday evening. Normally does five till seven on a Tuesday. Mm -hmm. And he's coming in. It should be fireworks. It should. We're going to be doing The Hitcher. You may have seen, from 1986, you may have seen the remake recently with uh, Sean Bean in the lead. But this is the original and the best with a fantastic performance by Rutger Hauer. And I've got a little teaser. Go ahead. Why don't you tell us what happened? I am telling you the truth. It was pouring rain and he just needed a lift. Did anybody see you pick this guy up? I don't know. We'll leave it at that, shall we? Okay. Yes, I get you into the mood for it. It does, and certainly appropriate, considering it's bucketing yes. it down outside. Yes. So don't yes. pick anyone up. Yes. <laughs> and we've got a cracking advert for cracking, as in those thunder effects for uh, for the programme. So do listen out during the week. Yeah. We a lot of fun making that advert. Yes. You're right. really getting into the swing of things with this. Yes. It's all great. Right. Films. Shall we start with uh, Cell 211? Okay, uh, this is the uh, the limited release uh, of this week. You might catch this at the time side. Um, it's a new, the debut film by uh, Spanish director Daniel Monzon, who I think has made a couple of short films, but this is his first wide release. It's a prison drama. Uh, the story is you've got... Uh, a guy called Juan Oliver, who's played by Alberto Aman, who accepts a job as a prison guard, and uh, the day before he uh, begins work, he leaves his pregnant wife at home and goes to the penitentiary for an orientation session. And uh, during the tour of the penitentiary, he gets a freak accident, which gives him a bang on the head. He passes out, and he's taken to a nearby cell. While he's unconscious and waiting for the doctors to arrive there's a prison riot and all the sort of the prisoners take over the prison and he's left inside and it's a question of where his loyalties lie um it sounds pretty interesting i mean I'm, from watching the trailer monzon's got a pretty good visual eye um my only reservation about it is that um did you ever see a prophet about uh 18 months ago no this no. fantastic uh, i think it was french or arabic film which was set in a prison and uh, sort of it did for sort of the foreign language prison, what Midnight Express did in the 70s, which was, you know, created a really sort of gritty prison drama, which also had sort of very artistic flights of fantasy, and there was a fantastic sequence in A Prophet involving a razor blade, because, you know, there's a sequence where he's got to surreptitiously kill someone, and he does that by hiding a razor blade in his mouth and then kissing them and sort of cutting their lips. And it's very brutal stuff, but very well done. My problem with this, you know, it's an interesting idea. I mean, the idea of, you know, the, well, 
to quote the specials, the, the lunatics taking over the asylum or the criminals taking yeah. over the jail. We've sort of seen that before. You could also link that back, I suppose, to things like Assault on Precinct 13, in which it's the criminals taking over a cop station and the cops have to join forces with them. So it's not massively remarkable, but it looks pretty well made and it'll do for a couple of hours decent entertainment. Great, good. And it's got a good, a good old score on Rotten Tomatoes. It does. I mean, obviously, yes. with, with those... With the reviews of Rotten Tomatoes, you have to sort of take into account how many reviews have been yeah. collected. Yes. But yeah, it does look pretty good. Great. Good. Harry Potter. Yes. Um, now, obviously, you've I've only seen up to Azkaban in the series, so why don't you tell us the so you've stories? So you have a few, few, few films to go watch. I do. So, yes. yeah, I'm going to watch the first yes. three again first, so you tell us the so story this is, so um, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2, mm -hmm. which uh, came out yesterday, wasn't it, uh, on UK-wide release? Yes. Uh, part 1 um, took us, well, about halfway through the book, oddly enough, and this is Harry and his friends who've, who've decided not to go back to school but are going instead to hunt for these Horcruxes, um, so that they Horcruxes can... Horcruxes being? For the uninitiated? Uh, some sort of magical symbol and they have to get seven of them and then they can... Yeah, they're fragments of yes. Voldemort's soul yes. which have been put in objects. Yes, then they can uh, put uh, Voldemort out of business, mm -hmm. roughly. So that's where we are at the moment. Um, yes, so and they found... One or two of them, and they've got to find a few more. Yeah, and of course, if you in, then in is it Chamber of Secrets, the second one where it's Tom Riddle's diary, which yes. is an, also an Hawk, yeah, a Horcrux, which right. has been destroyed. So that's the story. side. this is the final Harry Potter film, uh, directed by David Yates, who's made all the Potter films from Order of the Phoenix onwards. And uh, like you say, it does come. So we're sort of dealing with the, the continued destruction of the Horcruxes. Meanwhile. The, the battle for Hogwarts is about to start where Voldemort and his Death Eaters yeah. have sort of descended on it. And uh, if you've heard the trailers, there's that fantastic bit of Ray Fiennes as Voldemort saying, Give me Harry Potter <laughs> and I will reward you. So there's that sort of yes. thing going on and it obviously culminates in the great showdown between Harry and Voldemort, yeah. which is what all of this has been leading up to. If you, going back to the, re the ratings on Rotten Tomatoes, so far it's turning out to be the best of the series, because I think so far the highest rated has been Azkaban, yeah. which, is, you know, which is the best of the three that I've seen. You know, Alfonso Cuaron, who's a proper filmmaker, also made Children of Men, which is a yeah. really good film. And so judging from the trailer, it does look really, really great. It's got, it's got everything you want from a sort of action fantasy, because the special effects are brilliant, and the battle sequences, and this is high praise coming from you know, yeah. someone who's a massive Lord of the Rings fan, they did remind me of the Battle of Pelennor Fields from Return of the King. Yeah. So there's all that sort of stuff, but there is also... There's substance about sort of the final battle between good and evil. Because um, people have read in all sorts about, you know, Harry Potter as, you know, an allegory for defeating fascism, or Harry Potter yeah. as a sort of Christ-like figure, which got the Catholic Church rather annoyed when the first couple of books came out. But They I think, still don't like Harry Potter, yeah, do they? Yeah, they don't get the fact that, well, first of all, it's not real. Yeah. But secondly, it's, there's all sorts of allegorical stuff going on from, what I've, from yeah. the little bits of the books that I've had the chance to read. So, no, it, it, no, just misinterpreting it. So, in terms of the film, I think it could well be the best. I don't think you need to see it in 3D because it's spectacular enough in 2D. Yeah. I love anything with Ray Fiennes in, even stuff like The Constant Gardener, which is a bit overrated and a bit too worthy. But, no, certainly it's not the place to start if, like me, you've only seen up to the third film. Uh, no. No, so, and you, you, yeah, you've really... You've really got to see uh, the sixth onwards to get the uh, the plot for the uh, for the final one. Right. I think so. Yeah, uh, but in terms of you know, the fans who are going to see this, I think you're going yeah. to be in for a treat, and I'm glad that it's going to take loads of money and not Michael Bay's yeah. abomination off the top. And I'm quite 
intrigued to see how they film the final bit of the um, of the book. Oh, no, uh, the if uh, you've read the book and nearly everybody has, then uh, you'll know it's a slightly odd end. There, uh, there are hints of bedazzled, from yes. what I can gather, yeah. cyan house in bedazzled. Yes, if and one that doesn't obviously know how you're going to turn it into film or TV, it would be... But anyway, we shall see. Yes, we, we shall. very intrigued. You can go and see it and report yes. back. Yes. And it is on Friday the 29th of July and Saturday the 30th of July in the evening here in Annick. Right. I've got my tickets for Friday night. And surprisingly, it's not yet sold out. I don't think there's been too much publicity about the Annick dates so far, so... Well, uh, we shall put that bang to rights. Yes. Annick 510785 for the box office. And then it's matinees the whole of the first week in August. Monday, Fantastic. Monday to Saturday and I think the Monday the week after. So uh, no excuse not to go and see it. Unless, like me, you haven't seen the other films. Yes. Right. Next one, Bobby Fischer Against the World. Which is a documentary directed by Liz Garbus, who's made a couple of pretty good documentaries about um, the reclusive chess player Bobby Fischer, who no, had an extraordinary life because he was the US chess champion at the age of 15 and he became world champion at the age of 29. There was that famous match in the mid-70s. Uh, Boris Spassky, I yes. remember it well. Because yes. up until then, all the big confrontations, chess-based confrontations, the Russians had won. Yes. And he was the uh, the guy who sort of turned that around and you know, gave the Americans something to believe in on the chessboard. But then he became a recluse and there was, uh, there was a famous rematch between him and Spassky in the 90s, which I think violated international law because it took place in, I think it was the former Yugoslavia, which which was, was not recognised and therefore he became a bit of a felon. He ended up being found in, I think, Cuba as a recluse and then died a couple of years ago. Um, it's interesting, I mean, the, on the one hand, Bobby Fischer, as a, just as a character, is inherently interesting because there is, there is something inherently cinematic about, you know, the obsessive nature of characters that comes yeah. from chess. I mean, uh, but tied in, so on the one hand, the character is interesting. The only thing I have in terms of a reservation is that I'm not sure this is particularly cinematic because a lot of the footage is of, you know, it's home video, but a lot of it is the television broadcasts of the chess matches because they were still yeah. showing sort of chess matches on late night TV in the 70s. Back in the days of grainy black and white. Well, not quite grainy black and white, but yeah. yes. Yeah, so the point is that unlike something like Senna, for instance, which did manage to yeah. take TV footage and make it feel like it belonged on the big screen, this does feel more like a TV documentary that just happens to have got a theatrical release. Yeah. But, no, I think it's worth seeing if you have an interest in chess or an interest in Bobby Fischer, but otherwise you, you're you not missing much by waiting for it to come on television. It's interesting that uh, divide, isn't it, between genius and insanity and... Um Yes. I was trying to remember, the, what was the uh, film a few years ago with the mathematician who was a real genius and... The Beautiful Mind? The Beautiful Mind, yes. yes. Turns out to be, um... She doesn't get older. That's yes. The, that's the spoiler, that's as much as we're going to give away. Yes, indeed, yes. Yeah. Okay, and our final one this week, Hobo with a Shotgun. Now, you, when we were planning this show, you kind of sent me an email saying, um, this doesn't look good for film of the week. Yeah, this sounds a sort of a typical redneck, dodgy, uh, dodgy film, but <laughs> so you're going to talk me don't, out to this. Don't prejudge, it's not redneck at all. Um, it's the debut film, debut feature-length film by Jason Eisner, who previously made a short film called Treevenge, which is about killer Christmas trees. Yeah. So, now that's sort of territory. And, uh, stars Rutger Hauer, who we were talking about briefly, because he's, we're going to be doing the hitcher next week and i mean rooker Hauer has he's an extraordinary actor i mean obviously he's best known for roy batty and blade runner which is one of the reasons i love him and there's that fantastic one of my all-time favorite scenes is the tears in rain speech in blade runner which i always cry at and that's fantastic you know when he lets the dove go yeah. out of his hand and it dies yes. but also i mean he's had 
a very good career as the sort of the bit man in exploitation films. I was watching Paul Verhoeven's Spedders uh, the other day, which is um, a film about a sort of coming-of-age story set around Rotterdam cross-country motorcycling. He plays this this motorcycling character called Gerard Witkamp, who kind of comes in with a silver jumpsuit and yeah. spangly hair, and no, just <laughs> looks <laughs> the coolest thing in yes. the world. But he does have this... He has this thing of often turning up in sort of crunky and slightly nasty films, but doing the best thing in them, and that's one of the reasons why I like him in The Hitcher. So with Hobo with a Shotgun, it's kind of him pastiching that sort of role that he did. Yeah. And the story is that it's set in the fictitious city of Hopetown, which, no, because of the way it's called, is overrun by criminals and by drug lords. It's controlled by this gangster called the Drake, who nobody touches. And Rutger Hauer plays the hobo with a shotgun who goes around fighting crime and stopping the criminals and eventually confronts the drake um in order to kind of understand the film you have to understand its origins um robert rodriguez who is the director who made things like well on the one hand spy kids on the other hand things like from dust till dawn and um planet terror which was yeah. part of the grindhouse double bill he is a big fan of exploitation cinema and he made every year at um south by southwest which is a film festival in america he runs a trailer competition where people can submit trailers for exploitation films and the best one will get the funding to try and make it into a film and hobo with a shotgun was the one that won the competition about two years ago so it has its origins in a trailer yeah. and it's a very simple 90 second premise stretched out over 90 minutes so <laughs> it's not going to be the most yeah. no the most subtle or the most smart or the most weighty film yeah added to the fact that you know there is a, a, if you've seen the unrated version of the trailer, there is a lot of sort of old-fashioned, squishy plastic gore of people, you know, stepping <laughs> on hands that then sort of spew. But yeah, but the point is, no, if you're fa if you're not interested in exploitation cinema, if you're not interested in things like the Mad Max series and so forth, then you're not going to see this anyway. Yeah. But for people like me who have a sort of a slight affection for those old-fashioned plastic effects like the works of David Cronenberg or the work of Rob Bottin and stuff like The Thing, although it's not up there yeah. with The Thing, then there is, there is something like that. So I think see it if you're a fan of sort of old-fashioned nasty B-movies, but on the other hand, the, the kind of the remaking of Grindhouse as a sort of postmodern pastiche is starting to run a little thin because Death Proof was rubbish and Planet Terror was only slightly better than it. So... It's not terrible, it's just a bit unoriginal, and as much as I like Rutger Hauer, I think that he should you know, he should get back to slightly more upmarket stuff, like his cameo in Batman Begins, which wasn't that long ago. Yes, yes, there's sort of feels of Batman about it, isn't there? Yes, uh, slightly, yes. Yes, in the storyline. Yeah, you could almost yes. imagine, like, Rutger Hauer walking into the script and he could say, OK, it was a cast me, Dutch, so they cast me in Batman, and I, and I didn't want, I wanted me to play Batman, but they couldn't do it, so can I do a film where I get to dress up and fight crime? Yes, but we haven't got the money for a rubber suit, so we'll just give you a shotgun and make you smell really bad. Yes. And now there's, there's the film. Yes, yes. Well, as somebody who used to live near to uh, redneck country when I lived in the States, it still sounds redneck to me, but uh, <laughs> I'm... Uh, Probably not going to be queuing to go see Yeah, that like one. I said, it's if you're not a fan of 70s and 80s gory B-movies, you're not going to enjoy it, but it's for everyone who is, it'll be fine. Meanwhile, you have brought me a little uh, thing to look at I have. during the week, which is a, uh, a DVD of uh, Kronos. Uh, great picture on the front, isn't it, of the, the thing? Yeah, not the thing, the thing, no. but the, the, the Kronos device, which is like a golden scarab beetle uh, attached to someone's chest. Yes. And yeah, because we were discussing Kronos last week, and check out the podcast if you missed that. Yeah, we shall enjoy it. Right, you're back next week with uh, Tom. Yes, um, we should say, of course, film of the week is obviously Harry Potter. Yes. In 2D, which yes, is what indeed. the Playhouse will be doing it. Yes. Go see it. Everyone else will. Yes. Right. 
Except you've got three of them to watch first. Yeah. <laughs> And, no, a lot of other things to catch up on as well. Yes, crack on, get watching them. All right, I will. <laughs> Otherwise, what we're going to, well, two weeks' time, I'll have been to see it, so I'll give you my opinions, because it'll probably still be number one. I dare say. Yeah. Thanks very much for coming in. My Taking pleasure. us up to the news, a lovely track from Adele. I'll be waiting. Don't forget Jerry G here this afternoon between 12 and 5, and Laura between 5 and 7. Bye-bye. Lion Heart Radio, the voice of Northumberland.